If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn to the book of Hebrews. I do ask that y'all will be praying uh, for me as I try to speak. Um, some weeks you have a real clarity of, of mind in your studies and you know exactly where you're supposed to go starting on a Monday. Some weeks you don't. This would be a don't. Um, so, the Lord's will, He can... He can take and He can bless. If not, I may have a miserable hour. I'd like to look at the book of Hebrews um, and attempt to kind of keep a big picture um, perspective on it. Uh, it is There's a lot of good stuff in Hebrews. Uh, and it's very tempting for a preacher to run and chase every uh, potential sermon in every subclause. I'm going to try not to do that today. The promises on the future. So, let's just jump in. It's a letter to the Hebrews. Um, it's not signed. Normally when Paul wrote letters, he put his name to it. Um, was it written by Paul? A lot of folks think it was. Doesn't tell us, so I'm not really worried about it. It's a letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews, another name for Jews. So these were those who were grew up under the law, and then there's a radical shift during their lifetime. That which everything they'd known and their ancestors had known going back a long, long time had been changed. Folks like to talk about the Reformation as if that was something that's relatively recent and happened in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Reformation was a changing, a straightening out. That was when Christ came. And so there's been a radical change to everything that they've known um, and how they worship going forward. And so the big picture theme from this letter is standing fast. Because everything in the culture around them is going to be telling them to abandon this new thing and go back to the ways that we did it all along. And so as we read through, I hope you'll, you'll see that, but I just wanted to kind of give you that 10,000 foot level. Well, let's just jump in. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past under the fathers by the prophets. So what you'll experience through this letter is a contrast. The old versus the new. How had God done it before? How is He doing it now? And so God who at sundry times, that means at various points and in various ways, diverse manners, He spake in times past under the fathers. Fathers, that's the Israelites. Jewish nation. He spoke unto them by prophets. So he spent prophets and told his word. He gave the word to the prophet. The prophet had to go and deliver that word to the people. Even if it cost him his life, or he was rejected, doesn't matter. He had to go give it. That was how God spoke. Right? Past tense. Hath in these last times, so this is the, the now, letters being written, and this is where we're living too. Hath in these last times spoken unto us by His 
son. Well, who's the us? Go over to chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. That's your audience. He's writing to believers. He's not writing to Jews in general. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. Okay? He hath spoken unto us by His Son. Jesus Christ, right? There's no, no ambiguity there. Old way, speaking by prophets. New way, spoken by His Son. Whom He, God the Father, hath appointed, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. Okay? So in the old way, He was speaking by prophets. He'd also speak to him by angels. You go over to chapter 2. Um, in verse 2 it says, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord? Right. Old way, prophets. Angels speaking to prophets, and the Lord speaking to prophets. New way, the Son, who is the Lord. The Lord means master of all the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So Jesus began to speak and teach, and then it was confirmed by those that came after that heard him. Those are the apostles, those who God inspired to write the New Testament. It was confirmed us, and God bore witness that he was speaking through those individuals, confirming what they had said about the Lord by giving them signs and wonders, diverse miracles, gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His will. Why did you have all those miracles in early uh, church? Because God was confirming this person is speaking truth on my behalf. Okay? There's going to be a lot of folks who tried to speak said, this one is the one who's speaking for me. Right, that was why we had it. Is there the same need for that anymore? No. Because we've got the entire revelation. There's nothing new to be revealed. And there's... You know, a warning at the end of uh, the book of Revelation of don't add to and don't take from. Okay, so be warned, be wary of anyone who says, "Well, I've got a new revelation." Well, you can go ahead and throw that out right now. Okay, so old way God spoke, prophets, angels. Now He's speaking by Christ, which was confirmed by those that heard Christ and recorded His word. All right. Now we're going to. Look for the rest of this first chapter. Because remember, these are these are it's written to Jews who their whole life have been under the law, and that that structure, that ceremony, everything about it, you know, it's it the identity. It was part of who they are and what they did, and so he has got to show and appeal to authority that this new is better, that you cannot go backwards. Okay, so how is he better? He has spoken to us by his son. Okay, how is the son better? Well, he's been appointed heir of all things. That sounds pretty significant. All things are Christ's. The heir of all things. You hear anything excluded in that? No. And by such inheritance, he has a more excellent name than all the angels. We'll read a little bit. By whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also He made the worlds. Alright, so the Son, Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, He's also the Creator. You get into the scope of He's eternal. This is not something just started with Mary. He was eternal. He was there at creation. By whom also He made the worlds. Who, 
Again, referring to Jesus. Being the brightness of His glory, God the Father's glory, and the express image of His person. You want to talk about a confusing topic? We can talk about the Trinity. One God, three persons, three in one. Can I explain it perfectly? No. It's a mystery. But this is how God describes Himself. God the Father, you cannot see. He's invisible, but Christ our Lord is described as being the expressed image of His person. Okay? And upholding all things by the word of His power. So not only is Christ our Lord there at creation, heir of all things, the expressed image of the person of God, the Godhead, He upholds all things by His power. He is a constant sustainer. Some people have this idea of God, well, He set up the universe kind of like a top and pulled the string and just watched it go, right? And it's just going to kind of go until it, it runs out of juice. No. He's constantly sustaining it. Okay? And that's our Lord. That's who is speaking. That's who we're to listen to. Upholding all things by His power. When He had by Himself purged our sins. Alright, who gets full credit for the purging of sins? Christ. Christ alone. Okay, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He did what? He sat down on the right hand of the majesty. And that's, that's God. Right? Sat down in the majesty on high. He sat down. Being made so much better than the angels, as He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Alright, so angels came and they spoke words to people. Those words, you know, verse over 2 it says, those words were steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a recompense. If you disobeyed what the angel said, that was a big deal. Right? It says, Who's speaking now? Far outranks anything an angel could say. Okay? You know, some some denominations have this idea that Jesus is just an angel. No. Go read Hebrews. The whole thing is he is way, 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 way better. He is not an angel. He is God. He is eternal. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. And he alone purged your sins. And when he had by himself purged your sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And later we'll see in this book that, that sitting down represents the job was done. There was no doubt or question marks or things I need to come back to. It's finished. Okay? Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So by inheritance, he's been appointed what? He's been appointed as the heir of all things. All things are his. He's also been appointed into a role of high priest. All this, he is better than the angels. Okay? Has a more excellent name than they. And you can look for this, these words as you're reading through Hebrews. And I want you to read it this week. Read the whole book. Um, look for words of better. Look for more excellent. Look for you know exceeding above. All these kind of superlatives. Everything you can do to describe of who's better, it's Christ. Do you have a high enough view of Christ right now? No. Because <laughs> He's better. Whatever you've got, it's higher. Okay? A more excellent name than they. Who's the they? The angels. Christ has a better name than angels. Much better. More excellent. All right? And then, he's writing unto Jews. They've known the Old Testament. They know the Scripture. They know the law. So how is he going to appeal to them? He is going to show them. And here's where it says in Scripture. 
That's how those Bereans could go check Paul. He's teaching things of Christ and saying, this is how he fulfilled this and this and this and this and this and this and this in Scripture. And they went back and did their homework and said, yes, okay, here, yes it is. Yes it is here and yes it is here to see if such things were so. So we're going to get a lot of direct quotations from the Old Testament Scripture. I'm not going to flip there today. I'm going to tell you where you can find it and you can go double check it, Bereans. Um, But we're just going to read it for today. And as I'm going through my Bible, it helps me to go ahead and put quotation marks around these so I can see where is Paul citing the Scripture. Okay, here and here, and then here and here. And it helps me break up these sentences because sometimes the sentences are long. That's right. But it's important to, to see exactly what's going on. All right. So, he's made the statement that Christ is speaking and that he's better than the angels. Name much higher. All right. How do you prove that? Verse 5, proof number 1. He says, For under which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He said, okay, show me an example in Old Testament Scripture where he said this to an angel. answer is, it doesn't exist. But he does say it to his son, to the Lord. This is Psalm 2 and verse 7. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Alright, so he has claimed and identified Jesus as his son. Never did that for an angel. Okay? He's got a better better name. How about my son? Okay. Second appeal to Scripture. And again, so he's saying there's another time. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So this is the second time. Has an angel ever had that said to him? No. Okay? And that's in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 14 that shows up. Something similar shows up in Psalm 89 and verse... 26. That's this quoting there is the Old Testament. This is when God's speaking, writing about Christ, and He is His Son, and He is His Father. Okay? This is something no angel can lay claim to. Okay? And again, alright, third example in Old Testament Scripture about how Christ is better, has a more excellent name. It says, again, when He bringeth in the first begotten into the world, He saith, alright, saith, we're getting a quote here, and let all the angels of God worship him. What happened in that pasture in Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born? The heavenly host came and they worshipped him because he's worthy of worship. So at this time, Jews held you know, Moses and they held the law and they held angels in very high regard. And they should. But he's saying he's way above that. Even the angels were instructed to worship him. All of them without exception. Alright? So that was our third example. And that's in Psalm 97 and verse 7. He says, well, let's contrast that. What does he say about angels? This is speaking about the Son. What does the angel say? And the angels, he saith, quoting here, this is uh, Psalm 104, verse 4, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Okay? He describes them as ministers. They're servants. So you're described as a son Angels, you're a servant. Who outranks in the family hierarchy? Sons or servants? Sons, without a doubt. Right? Later in 14, he'll say, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? This is referring to angels. Their job is ministers. They're servants. And their service is directed towards God's children. That's their role. All right? So... 
Here you've got the, you know, the distinction between son and servant. Well, he's going to take it to another level. It's not just between son and servant, but it's a servant and a king. Look down in verse 8. But unto the son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. All right, you've got a, you've got a kingdom. You've got a throne. You've got a kingdom. And it's not one that's just going to be for a short time. It's eternal, forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved iniquity. Thou hast, excuse me. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Okay, above thy fellows. Uh, that is Psalm forty-five, verses six and seven. It's Old Testament scripture pointing to Christ, showing. Christ, a king. he's a king. He's got a throne. It's never going to stop, and he is above everything. Okay? Above thy fellows. And again, in verse 10, you get another one. This is Psalm 102, verse 25. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth. Alright? The Lord here is talking about Christ. You've laid the foundation. It's acknowledging him as the creator. Laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hand. Again, creator. They shall perish but thou remainest eternal. They shall wax old as doth a garment, as a vesture they shall be folded up. Thou shalt, they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. And the attributes of God is that He doesn't change. Immutable. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. Creation does. There's a time where this thing is just going to wear out and He's going to fold it up and put it away like a worn out garment. He's going to replace it with something new. And you know what the new thing is? Subject to Him too. Okay? So He is the Lord. He is the Creator. He's the Master. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. This is all referring to the God, the God the Son. And all of this is telling you why you need to listen to Him. And recognize that you're under His authority. Whether you recognize it or not, you are. As a vesture shalt thou be folded up, and they shall be changed. But thou art not the same; thou art the same. Thy years shall not fail. And then in verse thirteen, he says, "But to which of the angels?" So we get again this expression of he's going to say, "Did he ever say this to an angel?" It's the second time he's done it. Did he ever say this to an angel? Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And that's Psalm one ten verse one. Did he ever do that? Look for the whole scripture. No. But to the son he did. He said. Sit here on my right hand. And that's where he's sitting now, on the right hand, waiting, expecting until all of his enemies are put underneath him. That's the period that we're in. He's sitting and we're waiting until all of his enemies are put under his feet. When will that happen? The last day. The day of judgment. That's when every knee shall bow. That's when they're all put under his feet. Okay? So how high is the sun? Higher than angels? Higher than prophets? Hey! Higher. There's no comparison. So he gives us an instruction. Are not they all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them shall be heirs of salvation? So again, it's reminding us that they're servants. He's the ruler. They're servants. Therefore. So you've got to have to have a big picture because you get to chapter 2, you start there. Therefore. Therefore means because of all that I've said, we. This is the first time he's mentioned a we. Right? All of it's been talking about Christ. Now it brings it down to We. Alright? Application, as the modern preachers say, right? Here we reply it. We ought 
to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. Heard from who? Heard from the Lord and those that confirmed Him in the Word. We ought to give more earnest heed. What does that mean to give earnest heed to? It means to me to pay attention to it. To consider it. Earnest heed. Why? Because they outrank everything that's come before. A word spoken by an angel, a word spoken by a prophet. You've now got someone speaking for God who has infinitely higher authority, position, rank, title, name. That's who's speaking. Right? If you go to have a powwow, you want to settle a war, right? Two kings. One king sends a lieutenant, the other sends a general. Who's more serious about the negotiation, right? The one who's given the higher authority to designate. What, what authority is a lieutenant going to have? He's like the bottom of the rung of officers. He can basically say what his superior said, and there's no, there's no negotiation there, right? Whereas one who's sending one who's got authority and power, you recognize this is, this is serious. You hear him differently, okay? And that may be an imperfect illustration, but the fact is that God sent his messengers before, now he's sending his son you got to give it heed. You've got to pay attention. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, what is this talking about? It's talking about the Gospel. It's talking about the truth of Jesus Christ, the fact that He purged our sins. You know, remember, the, the, the temptation here is to walk away from Christ. We've had you know, Judaism all our life. Now, we're, we've followed Christ. We've been baptism, whatever. We've just experienced it. And yet, all this other is pulling us back. And it's going to be so much easier to go back. There won't be any persecution. There won't be any hardship. There won't be any struggle with those around me. But, he's saying, how can you go back? The one that you are listening to is infinitely better and you need to remain and stay focused. Stand fast. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Lest at any time we should let them slip. For, alright, then it gives the contrast between the words of the angels. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, they're delivering the message from God that those words were steadfast. If they are, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of the reward, if you breached what the angel said, God punished them. Right? You saw that throughout the Old Testament. If God said, do this. They didn't do it. There was a there was a direct chastening for it. It may come way down the line, but it says those weren't going to be ignored. And then in verse 3, and this is, this is, this is serious. How shall we escape? Alright, so you breach what the angel said. There was a consequence. How shall we escape if we neglect so great of salvation? The truth of the gospel, what Christ has done, Jesus himself, if we neglect that, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them signs and wonders. Uh, God bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His own will. This is the truth. This is the gospel. This is what we've been following. How can we neglect it? Do we think that there's going to be an escape? If I walk away, is it just it's no big deal? No. And then He's going to go back to Scripture and make an additional appeal to show you how much higher Christ is. It says, for unto the, 
For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come. Alright, that's kind of a funny way to say it, but what he's saying is that the angels, there's going to be a new world, and that world is not under them, but it is under Christ. Okay? And then he's going to quote Psalm 8 and verse 4. It says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Well, that verse 7, that's talking about Christ himself. Alright? Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. End quote. Alright, that's the end of the, the psalm there, and then he's going to give the comment. For in that he put all in subjection under him, everything is under Christ, he left nothing that is not put under him. All creation, current and new. The new heaven, the new earth, heaven, everything is going to be under Christ. There's no exception to it. He says, but now, alright, we're here in the moment where we're living and where Paul, or whoever was writing Hebrews, the Hebrew writer then says, but now we see not yet all things under him, right? He's sitting on the right hand. He's waiting for the enemies to be put under his footstool. We're waiting for that fulfillment. We don't see everything under him yet, but what do we see now? But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He's plugging in Jesus into that psalm. So back to Psalm 8 and verse 4. Thou makest him a little lower than the angels. Thou makest Jesus. When he was born into the world, you made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crowns it with glory and honor, right? Crowned with glory and honor, verse 9, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He put himself into a position where he could die. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, Christ, for whom are all things? Who does everything belong to? Christ! For it became him. For whom are all things? And by whom are all things? Who's the source, the origin of all things? Christ! He's the creator. It became him. So they're all his. He created them. It became him in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain or the prince or the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, that perfect is not referring to sin at any rate, but it's saying complete. That Christ was made complete for that role that He was been put upon. As the deliverer, as the Savior, He was made complete by taking on human flesh, by living a life of trial and temptation, doing it perfectly, by suffering on the cross. He was made perfect. He was made complete for that experience as the Savior, both in accomplishing what he set out to do, because he purged the sins by himself and he sat down, but also as he's sitting down as a high priest who's able to actively intercede to God on your behalf right now. And as a perfect high priest because he's been there. It's not this kind of head knowledge of, well, that seems to be a hard situation he's going through, but, but I'm God and I'm detached and I don't know what that's like. He's actually been in human form and experienced hunger and pain and thirst. And he was able to do all those temptations without failing, which is why he is in the perfect role as our high priest. Kind of getting on a tangent, so I'm going to get back to the text. All right, He's made the captain of our salvation. He's the author. He's the prince of, of our salvation. 
captain of their salvation, made perfect through sufferings. Alright? And then it's going to describe us as being one family with God. For both he that sanctifieth, that's Christ, that's the one who makes us holy, and they who are sanctified, that's us, we were made sanctified by him, made holy by him, purged by him, are all of one, one family, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Don't ever think about that? That the God of the universe, who created everything and for whom everything belongs, is not ashamed to own you as his brother and his sister. That should blow your mind. He's not ashamed to own them as brethren. And then Paul's going to support that with Scripture. Goes to Psalm 22 and verse 22, saying, quoting here, I declare thy name unto my brethren. I, there is Christ, thy name referring to God. I declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. So this is pointing to Christ owning you as his brethren. Declaring the name of God the Father in the midst of the church. Another Scripture reference. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in Him. That's Psalm 18, verse 2. Get a third one. And behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Right? You can, from those three scriptures that He's pulling to, you can see that there is one family. And you're part of it. We're not this red-headed stepchild who's kind of over here and not really liked or whatever. But He's made us in. Called us brethren. We put our trust in Him. He's our protector. He's our deliverer. He's the only one that we can look to. He's the author and captain of our salvation. And behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Look, there's a mini, mini sermon there on election. God gave them to Him. Those children. And they are His. And then, so because we're one family, it explains why He had to take on flesh and blood. Don't worry about it. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, we're flesh. We're, you know, flesh just means meat, right? We're flesh and blood. It says the children are flesh and blood, but we're all one family. Well, since we have to be partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same. He came and he took on flesh and blood. He didn't come down here uh, like an angel who didn't have the need of eating anything, where he could just you know zap himself in and out. I mean, it's just he. He came and put on the flesh and blood. Not on the nature of an angel, but on the, on the nature of one of us. For he himself likewise took part of the same, flesh and blood. That, why? Why did he do that? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. And if you're wondering who that is, that's the devil. That's Satan. That he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And... That's one thing he accomplished. To destroy Satan. To and deliver them. That's his us. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Did you ever think about that? You were subject to bondage. Before you were born again, death was a really big deal. You may not wanted to think about it, but you were subject to a bondage of death. There was no hope. There was no light at the rainbow. There was no whatever. And you probably didn't want to think about it. 
But by our sins, at the end of our death, the only thing that we were entitled to and deserved and righteously should receive is eternal damnation. That's it. We have no goodness to plead. And yet by the cross, He came and He lifted you out of that prison. Your whole life would have been subject to bondage otherwise, subject to that bondage of the fear of death. He removed that. So He delivered, destroyed him that had the power of death and delivered them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And then He says, For verily, or truly, He took not on Him the nature of angels. He didn't. But He took on Him the seed of Abraham. He became man. And specifically, He was you know, in the descendants and lineage of Abraham because He was going to fulfill all those types and shadows and all those prophecies that were pointing to how the Messiah would come and He did it perfectly. Okay. Wherefore, because in all things it behooved him, it was bound, it was right, him to be made like unto his brethren. Why did he need to be like unto his brethren? Why did he need to be like unto us? It's what I was just mentioning a second ago. That he may might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. How are you going to appease God? There's no one who can go between man and God except for God Himself. And God humbled Himself to become man too. And so He is the perfect daysman, the one who goes between. He's able to be both merciful and faithful, trustworthy, dependent, dependable, to make reconciliation, to atone for the sins of His people. Why? For that in He Himself hath suffered being tempted... He is able to succor, that means give aid or comfort, them that are tempted. Because of what He went through, because He was willing to humble Himself and become a man and suffer in this world, He is now perfect in that He is complete and able to give you aid and comfort in mercy. It's the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge, right? Um, you know, I... Sometimes when something terrible happens to someone else, if we've never had that exact scenario or something real close in our life, we kind of know they're hurting and we hate it for them, but it just it's kind of up here. Versus if you've had that scenario in your life, your heart just breaks for them. Like you, you're, it's not worried about your head of knowing, well, that must be awful. It's you feel it. Okay? That's the degree of how Christ's tender compassion is for you, of knowing your trials and your struggles and everything that you're going through, He knows. And He cares. That's the other part of us. Sometimes we know, but we don't care. Right? We get hard-hearted and bitter and just, what? well, maybe you deserve it. Right? But He is a perfect, merciful high priest for each of His children. Alright? Chapter 3, get another. Wherefore? So because of all that, that's who we're listening to. The eternally much higher outranking word that we're hearing. And because of what he's done, taking on the man, showing, taking on human flesh, and showing that we are all of one family, and he's willing to own you as his children. Wherefore, holy brethren, holy brethren, that means you have been made holy. How? By him! Holy brethren, not because you're so great. In spite of that, in spite of you, he loved you and cleaned you up. Wherefore, holy brethren, because of that, partakers of the heavenly calling to be called by God. That's where it comes from. The heavenly calling, the heavenly bidding. I want you to do something. 
Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Consider. To observe fully. To perceive, to behold, to study. If he's this much higher and outranking everything over here, you've got to pay attention to it. If he's done this because he loves you so and he's brought you in his family and has cleaned you up, Pay attention. You know, the, the, the apostle. That's interesting. Sometimes we get, well, there's only this many apostles. Well, I didn't count Christ as being the apostle, but he is, right? He is the messenger from God the Father. The words that he spoke were his own. They were the ones that the Father gave him to give. And so the apostle is a specially designated messenger chosen by God to deliver the word. Well, he was the first, and he is the. And all the others are just confirming what he said. Hey, okay, so consider him. Having this rank in your understanding of where he falls, or where he fall, rises above, consider him. Both our apostle and what he said, and our high priest. Alright, so that's your summary. Chapter 1, apostle. Chapter 2, high priest. Because of those things, Christ Jesus, consider him. Who was faithful, he was, Christ was faithful to him that appointed him. Who appointed Christ? God the Father. He was faithful to him. He did everything right. He didn't miss anything. He was faithful. As also Moses was faithful in his house. Now we've talked about angels. We've talked about prophets. Now we've got to talk about Moses. Because Moses could be put up on a pedestal. I mean, Moses was the man, right? All the things that he did, let him out of Israel, got the law. Right? He's got to show that he even way outranks Moses. Okay? He was faithful. And he, looked, he gives Moses, Moses some props here. He says, Moses was faithful. Moses was faithful in all his house. But then he clarifies the pecking order. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He says, well, how is that so? Inasmuch as he that buildeth the house hath more honor than the house. All right, so will you go out and build your house? Who are we going to brag on more? You, or are we going to go back? Man, that's a great house. House, house, you're great. Well, you talk to the guy who builds it, right? Well, Moses was a servant in the house that God built. But Christ is the son. Again, son outranking the servant. But also, he built the house. Everything he is, the creator and the sustainer, it's all his. So he's got to outrank Moses, all right? For every man... For every house is builded by some man, right? They don't just pop up. Somebody's got to build a house, physical house. And he that built all things is God. Right? He that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house. He was. He was a good servant. A servant for a testimony of those things which should be spoken after. What does that mean? It means it says, his faithful servants as a servant pointed to what Christ would do perfectly. He was foreshadowing. He was the type. He was the shadow. Christ is the real. Don't put the shadow above the real. He was faithful to testimony of those things were spoken after. For Christ is a son over his own house. Well, what's his house? Whose house we are. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. What is the evidence that you are of the household of God? Is that you hold fast to the end. What's going to happen? What's going to happen is that there will be some who have 
followed Christ, believed, and you can do air quotes on that, were baptized, and yet they weren't following from the heart. And after a time, they're going to depart. Okay? A good example of this would be Simon the Sorcerer. Go read in Acts. I think it's chapter 8. Simon the Sorcerer. He used to be a guy who deceived people with his you know, magic and everyone thought he was something special. The apostles come. They taught. And it says he believed and was baptized. But then when he saw that they're giving out the Holy Ghost by laying on their hands, he offered to buy it. He said, I'd like some money so I could do that. Now, here, here you have some money. And, and I'll take it. And the apostles rebuked him. And they, they confirmed that his heart was not right, that he was still in the bonds of iniquity. And you can go find that. I'll avoid the tangent for now. But that's a good example of one who believed on some level, but it wasn't from here. It wasn't the heavenly calling. Okay? And over in 1 John uh, 2.19, it would talk about that it was an evidence when they go out from among us that they were never really among us. Okay? So... Whose house we are. So what's Christ's house? We're His house. Who built the house? He built the house. He's over it as a son, not a servant. He built it and maintains it. Wherefore, so this is some instruction from, again, a a quotation from the Old Testament in Psalm uh, 95, verses, uh, I think it's 7 through 11. But wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, so we're quoting Psalm 95, today, if ye will harden, if, excuse me, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. End quote. Okay? So this is the psalm. It's talking and give an allusion to something that's already happened back before, right? When they, the children of Israel were told to go into Canaan, they didn't. Right? There were those who were fearful and unbelieving, and so they didn't go in. So this psalm written significantly later is saying, Now today, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. That was referring to then, the provocation, when they didn't go in. Because they didn't go in, uh, God swore in His wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Right? So that's, that's the illusion, and that's going to be held on to going forward for a little bit. But listen to what he says. Take heed. Take heed. That's a warning. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Okay? It's admonition to stand fast, to continue to follow, to continue to seek. Beware, lest there be a heart of unbelief and departed from the living God. But, here's the positive, but, exhort one another daily. Sometimes we jump straight to this verse. Alright guys, we want you to help each other. Here's the context for everything. Stand fast for God's word. The one who's spoken is Christ himself and he's worthy of being listened to because he outranks everybody else and he owns everything and it's all for him and you're part of his family. He's cleaned you up and made you pure and he's your high priest and he is there advocating on your behalf right now. Therefore, don't depart. Exhort one another daily while it is called today. No, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. Exhort each other one another today while it's called today. Lest... Lest, uh, lest any of you be hardened 
through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will deceive you and sin will harden you. For if we are made partakers of Christ, for we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Right? You'll see that. You'll see that that confidence is not going to be laid down and walked away from. For we are made partakers of Christ. I think another way you could think about it is you're a real partaker of Christ if it's steadfast to the end. If you're willing to walk away from it and say, well, I follow Christ for a little bit, but I don't really need Him anymore. I I like the old way better. I'm just going to do my own thing. That's a scary thing. While it is said, today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. It says, for some did. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. So, got this group that heard the good news. You're going into the promised land. Some believed, and some didn't. And those that didn't believe, well, they do. They provoked. They incited God. They were provoking, was not obeying. They provoked. Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Some of them did believe. But with whom was he grieved the forty years? Was it not them that sinned? What was their sin? Unbelief. Whose carcasses fell in the wilderness. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? Who's that answered all those questions as them that believe not? Right? So this image here in the Old Testament of natural Israel going into the promised land and there being a hindrance for those who are not believing and they don't follow through, this is a type that points to the big picture of Christ and the real promised land. That the good news will be declared and there will be those who don't believe it and can't believe it because they weren't called and they won't enter in. They won't enter into His rest. But those that are part of the heavenly calling will. They will enter into His rest. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Verse four. Let us th- or chapter four. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. This is not something to be a dalliance with, or a hobby, or a side issue. This should be central to our lives. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short, to be deemed to have fallen short. For unto us was the gospel preached. The good news is preached. The good news of Jesus Christ. As well as unto them. That's referring to the Old Testament comparable. The good news of going into the promised land. And the word preached did not profit them. Why? Why? not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Well, most denominations say, well, just get some faith. And then you can hear that preaching will be great. <laughs> faith is a gift of God. If you've got faith, praise God. He gave it to you. So I could preach at you till you're blue in the face, but if God hasn't given you faith, it ain't going to go anywhere. I ain't that good. People listen to the perfect preacher, Christ. 
And he told them when they didn't understand, he said, you cannot believe. Because they had not been given to him by his father. Not that they would not believe, but they could not. They did not have the ability. They did not have the gift of faith. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Okay? If you've actually believed, and believed is past tense and it's continuing on, if you have believed, you do enter into rest. Now, that rest that I'm pretty sure it's talking about, that's talking about the real rest that comes when you did. Okay? This is not a, oh, I've got a peace and calm now in this life. No, we've got promise that we're going to have trials and afflictions. And later down in verse uh, um, 10, it says, For he that entereth into his rest hath also ceased from his own works. Okay? As long as we're still here, we've got work to do. Labors to perform. Not saying we do those to earn anything, but there is still a work to be performed. But when we enter his rest, we have believed, do enter his rest at our death, as he saith, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Alright, so the quotation there is, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Alright, if. That's a conditional. There's going to be, will they enter in? And he's, he clarifies here saying, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And why is he saying, why is he bring that up? He says, he's not talking about the rest of the Sabbath. He's not talking about the fact that God ceased from his labor uh, at creation. He's talking about a different rest. So he goes back to the Old Testament. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, Genesis, God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. Yes. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. So he'd already rested at creation. And now here in Psalms he's saying, if they enter into my rest, well, it's got to be talking about a different rest. Right? It's not the ceasing of God's labor at creation. There's something else. And it's got a conditional, an if. If they're... Uh, verse 6. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein. Right? That's what the if is representing. Saying that there are some... Who are those? Those are His. The ones that He given to His Son. The one that He calls to Him. Those that are going to be with Him. Those are who will enter in. It doesn't say all. Some shall enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. And again, you're going back to that type. That first priest is talking about the Israelites. Here's the good news. Here's the promised land. Enter in. They didn't believe. They didn't enter into His rest. Instead, they died in the wilderness. Destitute, right? Carcasses lying in the desert. Again, he limiteth it a certain day, saying in David, Psalms of David, Today, after so long a time, as it is written, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Right? So it's been a long time since that natural Israel. He's saying today, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, this is referring to Joshua. Jesus and Joshua are the same name. Old Testament Hebrew is Joshua. New Testament Greek is um, written Jesus, but this is referring to Joshua had led them into Canaan. For if Joshua had given them rest, right, when they came into Canaan, if they had received rest then, then he, David, would not have afterwards have spoken of another day, right? You wouldn't have had to write this again in Psalms years after they've gone into Israel if there's not some other rest to come, okay? For there remaineth a rest, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There is a rest. It remains one. This is good. We're looking forward to it. For he that has entered into his rest, he hath also ceased from his own works as God did from his. All right. Well, that's the pattern. Shown in creation. 
God performed his labor, then he ceased his labors, and there was the period of rest, right? Let us, therefore, let us labor, toil, work, strill, strive. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of joints of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. This is not talking about the Bible. It's not. It's talking about the Word. Because what it's referring to here is God and His Son sees through religious hypocrisy. You can be the most religious whatever, and if you're not seeing through the heart, you're not deceiving a malik. If it's not of faith, if it's not coming from here, He sees through it. For the Word of God is quick. Quick means alive. Christ is alive. He's living. He's alive. And powerful. More powerful than you can imagine. Sharper than the two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit. There is nothing that you can hide from Him. He is able to divide it all the way down. There is no hypocrisy that you can layer up that He can't see through. Dividing Dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Again, this is not talking about the written word. This is talking about the word, the one who can discern your thoughts and the intents of your heart. He sees it. He knows it. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight. Again, this is not a His. Christ is the His. Every creature is manifest. Everything He can see. He's omniscient. He knows all things. Okay? Seeing then. Neither is there any creature not manifest sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Well, who do we have to do? Christ! The subject of this whole letter so far of how He's the best and better than everything before, He knows. Four. Because of that. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Say that in a different way. We have a priest who can be touched and who is touched by the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. He experienced the trials and temptation, yet he did it without sin. Yet without sin. Let us therefore, because of that, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is your instruction. This is your invitation. This is when you know when you're going to God to pray, you're going very into the throne room. These you know, first four chapters are why you can stand there boldly and know that I don't have to come shrinking in here like a peasant. If I know what I did. Um, you know, I, I, I messed up. And, and I'm not worthy to be here because of what Christ did you are worthy because regardless of what you did recently you did worse stuff before that and you'll do worse stuff after it but all of it's been paid for and so the answer is not well let me just stay away from God in prayer let me stay away from the church let me whatever until I clean myself up right I want to turn over a new leaf well the underside of that leaf is just as bad as the other side right you got to have God working in your heart Making you new. That's how any of us has changed. Right? It's of Him. So don't draw back from God when you're 
not doing right. Lean in closer. You can go boldly unto Him, unto that throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. That's what He described as being the merciful and faithful high priest. Reconciling, who has reconciled us to God, purged our sins, set down. That work is completed. Now He continues to intercede on your behalf where you can go to find the grace you need and help, to help in the time of need. Have y'all thought about Christ enough this week? I haven't. Have I been tempted to put something else as more important? Some word, my word, my thoughts, my opinions? Ooh. What do I rank as more important? He's worthy of being followed. And followed from the heart. And we should be mindful, fearful, with reverence, knowing the magnitude of whom we have to do. This is not a light thing. What we come and do here, this is not a light thing. This is a serious thing. We are trying to worship and we're trying to learn about our God and what He's revealed about Himself through His written Word. I think that's far enough for today. Thank you all for your time and attention.